99.9% of what's real in the AI world right now is what I would call narrow AI. And it's very specific AI designed to solve very specific problems. There's AI that solves marketing problems. There's AI that solves accounting problems. There's AI that helps companies determine who qualifies for a mortgage. There's all different sorts of AI that are very specifically solving problems now. And they're brilliant. The problem with it is they all need to be trained to do what they do. The AI is born like a infant and it needs to be trained. And the only data you can train AI with is data that exists. So the AI tends to become almost a replication of the conventional approach. It just kind of does it faster and quicker and so forth. So I don't think there's a whole lot of magic right now. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we spoke to Jason Downey, who shared the unconventional path he took from being a singer in a tour in a cappella boy band to becoming the U.S. CEO of Making Science, an international marketing consulting firm. Interestingly, when he answered the question about the business expression that drove him crazy, he mentioned the term AI and the fact that in today's environment, many use it without having a clear understanding of what it means. By pure coincidence, our guest today also had a non-linear journey in his career, but he also happens to be an expert in AI. Stephen Klein is the founder of Curiouser.ai, a business in which he's trying to use it in a very different way. We had a very long and interesting conversation, so I decided to break the episode in two parts. Today, you will learn about him and the path he took, which in itself is a fascinating story. And then you will also hear an explanation of how he thinks about AI, some definitions, and some practical thoughts for leaders who need to tackle the impact of AI on their business. Next week, we will dive into what he's trying to do with his business. But that's not all. We will also discuss an interesting tour that he took from the world of business a couple of years ago. And then finally, I will get his answers to the personal questions that I ask everyone at the end of each episode. Enjoy the show. So, Stephen, why don't you introduce yourself to my listeners? And as I tell all my guests, you can take as little or as much time as you want. Well, thank you. My name is Stephen Klein. I uh, live in Sausalito, California, which is an extremely beautiful place with my beautiful, beautiful wife and golden retriever. I'd say my treasure in life is my, uh, I have boy-girl twins, 23 years old from a previous marriage. Daughter lives in New York. Graduated from NYU recently. My son lives in Boston, graduated from Northeastern. And uh, I'd say that that's sort of the primary aspects of my life. I have been building a dream now for about a year and a half, almost two years, which is an entrepreneurial venture. It's a company that I'm happy to talk about at some point if anyone is interested. But it is my passion. It is my love. And I've been doing it pretty much for... 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, it's a dream. It's a nightmare. It's an obsession. It's a passion. But like I think most artists and I think entrepreneurs are artists in many ways, you don't have the option not to do it. So you do it. When I'm not doing this, I teach at Berkeley. And that is another passion of mine. It, 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 I guess it's a hobby. 
because I love mentoring and teaching. So I teach artificial intelligence. I teach marketing to undergrads and grads. And I take that work very seriously. uh, And I just love it. I just love it. Clayton Christensen said the only metric in life that matters is how many people per day if you help be better people. And I think that's a really nice operational metric to keep in mind. And so I spend a lot of time teaching. I'm also involved with a group of Harvard Business School alumni. There are about 300 of us in the Bay Area, and we uh, organize ourselves into pro bono consulting groups. And we work with Bay Area nonprofits and try to help them be more more successful. Uh, and that's something I also enjoy a lot for, for a number of reasons. Prior to this, from 2015 to 2021, I ran innovation and marketing for the largest law firm in the world. It's a company that had 22,000 people, 145 countries, helped build digital transformation infrastructure inside the company, traveled around the world and spoke to lawyers about artificial intelligence and ethics, did all the things in marketing that one can do. And it was a great five and a half, six years. And then prior to that, I started another company called Loyal3, which was an idea that I had gotten in a finance course at, 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 at HBS. And basically what I did was created a digital platform. Three of us started it 2008, took it to almost 400 people, took it to about 45, 50 million in revenue, uh, eight and a half years. What we did was built a digital platform uh, working with closely with the Securities and Exchange Commission and Wall Street that enabled us uh, for the first time to distribute IPO stock at the same price and time as Wall Street would get it. And it was a democratization play and it was a great, great project. And uh, I got to help companies go public like Virgin, GoPro, uh, Dave & Buster's, AMC Theater, HubSpot Square. And we eventually sold it to Goldman. Yeah, I feel like my work has been an adventure. I've traveled and lived all over the world. I'm not quite sure where I'm headed. Uh, but perhaps at some point I'll get there. And in the meantime, yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. One of the reasons why I asked you to come on the podcast is that you've had not a very common path out of business school when you compare your progression to some of what our fellow graduates did. You know, you have tried to blend your passion for art and service with your interest for business. As you think back about your career, What were some of the intentional moments when you decided what you wanted out of it and how you wanted it to blend all your different interests in your profession? I think I would almost characterize the phases of accident, phase one, frantic, phase two, and more purposeful, phase three. I fell into what I was doing. There was really no grand plan. I mean, was it John Lennon who said, life's what happens to you while you make plans? I guess I kind of lived that belief. So the whole thing got started when I was an undergrad and I was the editor-in-chief of a daily newspaper. And the only reason I did that was because my girlfriend had broken up with me and I was devastated. And so I wanted to try to find meaning somewhere. So I ended up getting engaged. I was a chemistry major. I ended up getting engaged with the newspaper, Uh, was elected editor-in-chief, 300 people, daily newspaper. Uh, Next thing I know, I'm talking to some folks around uh, the technology world, and I graduate, and I end up in advertising. Literally, I had never ever thought that that would be something I do, and so I was in big advertising for my first ten years. A company called Hill Holiday, big Boston 
shop bought by Interpublic. They sent me to Europe. I traveled all over the world. I was kind of a rock star. It came naturally because it did lend itself to some creativity. And so that was all just an accident. I fell into that. After that, it was almost sort of like, what next? Frantic. Because I needed to survive and make a living. You know, I was married. And so I uh, kind of jumped from one lily pad to the next, quite frankly. Went corporate, kind of ran marketing for Dun & Bradstreet, which wasn't necessarily a passion of mine, but was interesting. Uh, and I made good money, but the corporate world wasn't something I really enjoyed. Quite frankly, I still don't. I don't judge it. I don't look down on it. But I don't like it for whatever reasons that I could articulate, but I won't. And I was lost, completely lost. And I was living in Atlanta with my wife. And magically, Dun & Bradstreet sent me to Harvard for what was a two-week program called Strategic Marketing Management. And it was like my eyes opened up. It was like there's sort of a method to the madness in that there are actual strategies. There are actual ways of thinking about things logically and analytically and not randomly and on an ad hoc basis. And after two weeks of that, I went back to Atlanta and I said to my wife, I want to go to Harvard. I can't be a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. I can't do most anything, but maybe I can go to Harvard. I, a kid like me going to Harvard, I mean, they'd never take me. What? And she goes, well, listen, Stephen, there's no way you're going to quit this job and go to Harvard. So shut up. And I kept at it. And she finally said, Stephen, tell you what, deal. If you apply to Harvard and you get in, we will go. If you don't, I never want to hear it again. I got in. So we moved and that kind of pivoted me to entrepreneurship. And so from there, I moved to the Bay Area. This was 25 plus years ago. And I've been banging around the entrepreneurial world ever since because like Steve Jobs said, you know, it's the crazy ones who think they can change the world who are the ones that do. It's the misfits. It's the square pegs in the round holes. Those are my people. And so I fit, I fit in here by not fitting in a lot of ways. And that's sort of been my path towards searching for meaning. You know, Mark Twain said that the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. And the most important questions in life don't have answers. But that's not the point. The point is that you at least search for those answers. That's the point. And the harder the question, the more important the question. And so that's sort of, that's been my path. So you mentioned that now you're finally doing what you really wanted to do, that you, you have, if you will, found your mission right now. Yes. I am, I've never been happier in my life. What is interesting is if the people do the math, they realize that this is coming at a point in your career when people normally would be sharpening their six or seven irons. Do you know, that, that thought hasn't escaped me. So what was the spark? How do you find what you wanted? I have a profound, profound belief in the right brain and creativity and innovation. And as the internet emerged, data took over. And I love data, but 
you know, there's three kinds of lies, lies, damn, damn lies and statistics. And, you know, there's confirmation bias in everything we do. And so I saw data as a spurious kind of something that got weaponized and somehow was crushing creativity and innovation in the world. And so I tried to figure out what I could do about that. What, because what, what could I do about that? Because I believe that it is creativity that is the only force that pushes humanity forward. Data doesn't push anything forward. It analyzes things. And when I was at grad school, we had a course called Technology and Operations Management. And bear with me, this will all come together. And in that course, I realized how stupid I was in that all my career up until that point, I just thought I was the sharpest knife in the drawer. And I knew how to be successful and make money and fly around the world. But here I am sitting in this class and I don't have a clue what anybody is talking about. Not a clue. And what I realized is that being smart and having a high IQ aren't remotely related and that being a genius is more about being imaginative and being more about learning how to think and more about learning how to learn and more about questions. And I realized at that point that I had a very high IQ, but I wasn't very smart. And I never forgot that. And I remember thinking about how this is going to sound crazy, but I realized, you know, how could you teach the world to think? And I thought about Socrates and I thought about Plato and I thought about that expression. If all you have is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And I realized, well, if all I had was Socrates, I could turn the whole world into Plato. That wouldn't be so bad. Anyway, two years ago, uh, AI evolves to the point where you've got these pre-trained large language models. And I know a lot about AI where I could actually build a Socrates and I could build an AI that could be accessible and help the world think more deeply and be more creative. And I could give creativity or, you know, I could give data a run for its money. And so I tried to figure out how I could do that. And that was the genesis of this idea. I realized that I could build an AI that could potentially change the world in a very profound way. And that was the genesis of the idea called Curiouser, Curiouser.ai. We'll talk about it a little bit, but I want to actually take advantage of the fact that I have somebody who's a real expert in AI here to, first of all, if you wouldn't mind giving me like a general definition of what AI is overall and a basic understanding of how it works. And in that, explain that there's a lot of very different type of AI. So... If you could just maybe take a few minutes to set a framework for what AI is and isn't so that people can understand a little more. There are two kinds of AI in the world, and only two. There is an AI that you could refer to as generalized intelligence or artificial generalized intelligence or AGI. And then there is an AI that is usually called weak AI or narrow AI. AGI is the AI that captures a lot of the media attention uh, when you hear Elon Musk talk or, you know, you hear other luminaries, Sam Harris, 
Uh, this is the AI that could potentially pose an existential threat to humanity by basically evolving to the point where it would surpass us in terms of its ability to think, grow, evolve, and so forth. As far as I can tell, there is no AGI in the world as of now, though there are some companies that are getting closer and closer to that. So 99.9% of what's real in the AI world right now is what I would call narrow AI. And it's very specific AI designed to solve very specific problems. And so basically, there's AI that solves marketing problems. There's AI that solves accounting problems. There's AI that helps companies uh, determine who qualifies for a mortgage. There's all different sorts of AI that are very specifically solving problems now. And they're brilliant. But the problem with it is, A, they all need to be trained to, to, to do what they do. The AI is like born like a infant and it needs to be trained. And the only data you can train AI with is data that exists. So the AI tends to become almost uh, a replication of the conventional approach. It just, it kind of does it faster and quicker and so forth. So I don't think there's a whole lot of magic right now in AI. It's problem solving, it's pattern detection. Uh, what is becoming very interesting about it is that it's becoming so complex. ChatGPT is a great example of this. It is an extraordinarily enormous large language model that it does eventually begin to take on a life of its own. And the people who build it, and this is absolutely true, don't actually know what they've built. This is the dirty little secret. So... If you build a successful AI, say in the justice system, there's an AI now that helps judges determine whether when people get out of prison, they will, you know, recidivism. And it makes predictions based on, you know, a zillion different data points. They don't know how it works, but it's accurate. The problem is it's biased because it was trained with data that was biased. So I guess to make a long story short, AI is nothing more than a tool that solves problems. It needs to be trained with data that already exists, which means it usually takes on the bias of the data that preceded it. And that as it gets more sophisticated, we are already losing control to some extent. And AGI isn't here yet, but I believe it will be here. And I'm in the camp that I think it could be threatening quite frankly. And I will say why I think that. I don't think that the intelligence will ever intentionally try and destroy humanity. At least I hope not. The other day, I, I was, you know, my wife found a, a spider. She's really scared of spiders. So she asked me to get rid of it. And I basically am very careful when I find a spider that I gently put it in a glass and I bring it outside. And I look at myself like, you know, you could be an AGI. The spider could be humanity and, and you'll be, you will be okay. And then I'll get in my car and I'll drive to Salt Lake City, do Nevada. And in the morning, I'll come back out and look at my car and there's a trillion dead bugs. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, nothing personal. I didn't really have anything against any of those bugs. 
but they got in my way and I didn't even know it. That to me is more likely the scenario, but who knows? It, it will be what it will be. You can't stop it. It's not stoppable. The toothpaste is out of the tube. So I'm going to ask you a complex and very broad question, maybe even an unfair question. But if you're somebody in a position of leadership, whether it's a business organization or any other kind of organization, what are the implications for you? Or maybe ask another way, what are the things that people in a position of leadership need to start thinking about as they think about the impact that the rise of AI will have on their organization? Well, if you're a, a, a business person running a company or a department or organization, the best way to think about it is to figure out what sorts of tasks in your company are repetitive and frequent. That would be the framework I would look at. So what sorts of tasks from a process perspective within your organization happen all the time the same way? That's the low-hanging fruit. So, for example, if you're J.P. Morgan and you realize that you've got, you know, 300 people processing the same mortgage documents over and over and over again, well, you can easily build an AI that will do what they take in hundreds of thousands of hours and seconds and do it better. Okay, that's the low hanging fruit. The next level up, I think, would be more around what processes within your organization are really critical to your success. Process, not bureaucracy. Dino, you and I know that there is a fundamental difference between process and bureaucracy. Process is quality. Bureaucracy is a nightmare. And I would start within those processes, and I would then begin to look at AI technologies that make those processes more efficient, and they're out there. So basically, you're solving very specific problems. It's not going to be like, there's no, nothing magic about it at this stage. And that's how I think about it, to be pragmatic. Um and those are the frameworks I would think through. I would look at what tools are out there and available. I'd start out small and I would scale over time. Uh, and the last thing I would say is that unlike typical conventional thinking around tech, which is primarily cost benefit analysis, which is like, well, gee, that solution will cost me $100, but it will save me $10 a month. So, you know, thank God in 10 months, I'll break even. Right. That's basically the formula for most tech investment. AI is kind of the opposite. It's got a long tail because it's more like a network externality. It's more like the fax machine where the first one cost a million bucks and was worth zero. And the last one cost nothing and was worth a million because of. And so AI, you do need to invest in it and you need to think about it longer term. You're not going to get your payback. Uh, cost-benefit analysis based on a contribution and a hurdle rate in three three and a half nanoseconds. And so you really do have to have a longer-term strategic perspective. I don't know if I've answered your question, but that's how I would think about it. 
No, I, I would say that you have answered my question. I actually like the answer so much that I'm going to ask you another difficult, big question. So when we talk about fear of AI, there is a fear of like the big catastrophic AI is going to take over the world. But there's also a smaller level fear, like a more pressing fear for many people, which is the fear of what AI will do to our jobs, to our ability to earn a livelihood. So you've operated in a number of very different organizations, large companies, small company, more corporate, more entrepreneurial entities. As you think about the process of rolling AI through an organization, what should somebody think about it? What are the key steps to take? I've thought a lot about that because that is what I actually had to do to some extent within the law firm environment because I wanted to talk with very, very smart people, both within the firm itself as well as through the, within the client base about those issues. And one of the things that I realize is that really smart people don't want to ever put themselves in a position where they think that they're stupid. So what you need to do is start communicating about it in a way that kind of assumes that people don't really understand it or know it, but not in a condescending way. You need to educate people. You need to give people the frameworks and the tools not to understand AI, but to learn how to understand it. The vocabulary, the terminology, the basic frameworks, the basic concepts. So the world starts making sense to them. So I'd start at the beginning and not assume that anybody really understands anything. Because the more people understand something, it's inversely proportional to fear, right? The less I understand, the more frightened I am. And the more I understand, the less frightened I am. So that's where I'd start. And then you want to engage people in the process. Because quite frankly, it's really cool. I mean, anybody that's got half a brain and thinks about this stuff ought to be just absolutely enamored and captivated by it. Because it is just the most fascinating development that humanity has ever created. Nothing has ever come close. And we're just at the beginning. This would be like tin cans in a string to where it's going to go when it becomes the internet. I mean, it's just the very beginnings. The second thing is that I would look at, I would say to people that, you know, I don't know whether AI is going to replace you or your job or me. I don't know. I don't know. But you know what? You can control what you can control. And you can't control what you can't control. So just knock it off. Get as smart as you can. Learn as much as you can. And the one thing I know for sure is that AI will definitely replace people who don't know how to use AI faster than it will replace people who know how to use AI. So, you know, I may not be able to outrun the bear, but I can outrun you. And so, in a way, you better start learning about it and you better start looking at it as a tool. So, let's say I'm teaching my class at Berkeley. I say, you know, marketing in a few years is going to be different. But it's going to be a lot like just how many tools do you know how to use and how well do you use them? Just learn the tools. Like, if you, if you really know how to use a hammer and a drill and a screwdriver, 
you're going to be a lot better a builder than somebody who still uses their hands and their teeth. <laughs> so that's kind of how I look at it right now. I'm fascinated by it. I love it. I've never seen anything more interesting in my life. And I would just love to help the world understand it more because I don't find it scary at all. This is the end of part one. Thank you for listening so far. As I mentioned, in part two, we will talk about Stevens Venture and a few other things. And one more thing about Stevens Venture. He expects to be in market by spring. In the meantime, if you want to find more information, you can go to the website, curiouser.ai, spelled C-U-R-I-O-S-E-R dot A-I. And then you can also find the page on LinkedIn. I would also encourage you to connect directly with Stephen on LinkedIn. His name is spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-L-E-I-N. As usual, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them to listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows ratings and review, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stay tuned, because after the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information on the episode and a few links, go to my website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Make sure that you follow the podcast on whatever social platform you like. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, you can look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely with Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here is Baby We Fly by Susan Cattaneo.
Oh 